regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where a long form in-depth conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys back career. My guest today is Diana Shea, the head of product and co-partner with Correlated. She thrives on working with enterprise software startups. She was previously the first product manager at infrastructure startup, including Cosmos Labs and Timescale. Prior to that, she was the venture capital at Norwest, focused on investing in early-stage enterprise software companies. And on weekends, Diana is always on the hunt for her next favorite coffee shop. So Diana, it is my pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, it's great. I'm really glad to be here. Pretty excited to capture some of the topics we have on the agenda today. Fabulous. To start our conversation, I want to go back into your education. I, I believe that you went to MIT for your undergrad to study economics. Can you briefly share a bit about your upbringing as well as your overall academic experience at MIT? Yeah, for sure. I actually grew up most, mostly in Orlando, went to public school, had a pretty, I would call it simple, middle-class kind of upbringing. People from Orlando don't typically go to MIT, but I did somehow get into MIT, and that's why I ended up there. Everyone always asks me like why I went to MIT and really the real reason is that it was the best school I got into. I just decided I would go. I was a little bit worried about going to such a technical school because I think growing up, I always knew I didn't necessarily want to be an engineer 24-7. So I didn't want to sit around and code all the time or be an electrical engineer, but I wanted to do something tech-oriented, but more on the business side of it. So I was a little bit worried about going to MIT. I wasn't sure I would fit in. And I think a lot of that is part of the reason why I studied economics versus doing computer science or electrical engineering. I went there and a lot of the students who were doing computer science and electrical engineering were like, they had done physics like since they were like six years old or something. So I didn't really feel like I fit into that culture. That's why I ended up studying economics. Do you recall any favorite classes that you take in undergrad? In undergrad, my favorite class was actually surprisingly bio. I think it was really because the professors were so great. And one of them just would bring these little plastic duckies to class. So if it was your birthday, you could get like a little ducky. I don't know. They just did a really good job of making it interesting. The two professors were really great. So yeah, it wasn't economics. and It wasn't anything uh, science related. I guess like bio is science, but it wasn't like software tech related. Yeah. Thanks for sharing a little bit of the context. And during your time at MIT, besides studying, you actually got a handful of um, industry experience via internship, I, I recall. And you work as an analyst at a variety of organizations, including places like Hungry Fish Media, ICIC, Morgan Stanley, and uh, TSMC. What were some of the valuable lessons that you learned from doing these internships? Yeah, I think um, most people who know me are, would not be surprised that I'm a product manager because I tend to like product manage everything um, in my life, not just like <laughs> not just work. So when I was like pretty um, early in studying as an undergrad. I looked up the career that I wanted to do and I decided that I wanted to become an investment banker because at that time, 
salaries for investment bankers were higher than salaries in other industries. So I was like, I'm going to go out there and just earn a lot of money. In order to get into like a top tier investment bank, you have to like prep all of these internships beforehand. That's why I ended up doing that. Um, I actually did Hungry Fish Media while I was still studying. So it was like a part-time gig during like the school semester. And that was actually really tough because actually I went to work and I was just always so tired all the time because we had a lot of like homework and stuff. So I would fall asleep at work and I got in trouble for it. So anyway, thankfully, my boss, who like now has started his own startup and is great, like he's like, I totally get it. You're like super tired, but you just need to sleep before you come here. And I think that was like a great learning lesson for me about like how to be responsible and plan out what you're capable of being able to do and what you're not capable of. But I learned a lot there and it was super fun. It was like my first startup experience. At all the other internships that I did, obviously, I learned a lot at Morgan Stanley and everyone knows what investment banking is. But I think across all of my internships, most of them required a lot of on-the-job learning. So I think what I learned most is just like how to take a job or a project that someone gave you and just figure things out. Particularly at TSMC, everyone is speaking Chinese there and I actually cannot read or write Chinese very well. So that was like a huge learning experience. But but yeah, I had a lot of fun in all of those internships. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So it sounds like you have to plan at the beginning of getting into investment banking and you go top down, putting all this milestone in your undergrad to tackle this, this misstep to make that vision become reality. And then, right. as you mentioned, a bit balancing between academic and working part time and learning on the job. That sounds like you really make your undergrad experience to be the best utility, I assume. Yes, yes. I, I made a roadmap and I, I succeeded. <laughs> yeah. And you actually become an investment banking analyst right after MIT. So you, you actually go do that and you spend about a year in the technology group at Morgan Stanley. Yeah. What was the biggest learning that you have from that first job out of uh, undergrad? Yeah, probably if I were to think the biggest learnings, I grouped the learning, like the biggest learning I had into two categories. The first category is just like work. So like more like technical ability. So I think what investment banking really gets you is it teaches you to have a really high bar for what you think is good quality at work. So you would get yelled at if like pictures weren't aligned or like fonts were wrong. So I think it just like really pushes you to have higher expectations for yourself um, and to not accept what I would call like subpar work. So I think that's one of the things I learned um, there. But I think really the biggest lesson I took away from um, Morgan Stanley is how uh, important culture is for a company. Because mm-hmm. I actually really liked doing investment banking. Like I actually thought it was fun. And you like met like CEOs of like public companies. And it was like, actually, like I could imagine that as, as you grow in your career there, you'd be doing really cool things. But I actually left Morgan Stanley early because I felt like the culture there wasn't a culture that I wanted to stay in. And I wasn't having fun anymore. It wasn't a super supportive culture. I actually left early. And in that period of leaving early, like a lot of stuff happened where the company will always try to take care of you while you're an employee. But the minute you start being unhappy, like companies can do some really crazy things. So I think really learned about how important culture is after spending a year there. Yeah, I see. So what a combination of the work itself as well as the, the, the co-workers, the culture, the environment that, that you, you put yourself in. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I definitely learned a lot there. I think probably like I learned about people and how the business world doesn't always have good people, despite what we like to think. So mm-hmm. people would take projects that I want away. People were aggressive. People would have me cover like if they were like on vacation or something. 
but then not reciprocate. So there are like a, there are a lot of like not great things that happen there. Like bosses would like haze me a little. So I, I don't know. I think what you learn is that people are people. And even if companies have this nice name brand, like the people are going to be people. Yeah, I see. And to the first part, you said you you um, got a chance to meet a lot of tech companies, right? And then preparing with a PL and doing uh, different um, analysis about the work. Is that how you, you become getting interest in, in the tech industry? Yeah, actually, when I applied for investment banking, I wanted to be in the tech group. So I chose to be in that group. And the funny thing is, like, everyone told me not to join that group because the tech group is notorious for having the worst hours, which ultimately was true. <laughs> but, but I liked tech more. Like, I didn't want to, like, go do, like, power and utilities or something. So I chose to be there. And then once I was there, I realized that these startups are really cool. They're working on, like, industry creators. So I definitely, that's where I decided for sure that I wanted to stay in tech. But obviously, like I left after a year, so I didn't want to stay in banking. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. In 2014, you uh, moved to the Bay Area and you joined the investment team at now West Venture Partners as an associate focused on enterprise uh, software. But yeah, my question is twofold. How did this opportunity come about? And, and secondly, what motivated you to make a career transition from investment banking into venture capital? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of different reasons why going into venture capital is a funner career than staying in banking. But the opportunity came about because a lot of VC firms tend to recruit directly out of investment banking. So that's where they find people who have been trained to use Excel, know how to make PowerPoints, know how to think about like business strategy and stuff like that. I got recruited in. But I think like the reason why I was particularly interested in venture is like in finance, there's buy side and sell side, right? So on the buy side, the power, you have more of the power because you have the money. So like you're going out there and investing in companies, whereas on the sell side, you're like trying to beg a company to use you as a service. So I think just overall, I liked that power dynamic better and wanted to move to the buy side. And when I was getting recruited, I tried out private equity as well, but I went into one interview and I was like, this is like banking on steroids. And I already didn't like banking. So I don't actually want to go into private equity and do it all over again. But now it's like even crazier. So I'd like venture better. And also venture works with like smaller companies. And I, in the back of my head, knew I wanted to start a company at some point. So I figured if I transitioned into venture, I would be able to get a little bit closer to startups. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So it sounds like you want to get more involved with the technology, especially earlier stage. Right. Size of the company creation process. And that's why you, and you want to find something that is like in between some of the skills that you learn from banking and then and startup and Venture sounds like a good medium to actualize that vision. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it, it, for a bit of context, can you share a bit about Norwest as a firm and how did you come to focus on ent enterprise uh, software? Yeah. So Norwest is a great firm. They have a very unique culture. I think back when I was there, they were one of the firms who had more of a, I would call it like a mentorship model where you would come in as an associate and kind of climb the ladder a little bit. So they're a little bit, I would call it like a little bit more old school in that way. But Norwest has a really great reputation in enterprise software. So that's why I joined them because they've invested in a lot of really great enterprise software companies. I really liked every single partner I met there. And that's how I ended up there. But they focus mainly more like series A to C. They do like late stage, but they have like this huge fund and they have a growth equity fund. So it was like a big group. And I thought it was a really great place to learn the basics. Absolutely. So during your time at Norwest, I came across your blog, your old blog on WordPress, where you written a fair amount of content about a variety of topics from the standard due diligence process to a mistake to avoid when pitching to a VC. 
to your startup limit test. Can you talk more about some of these takeaways from your time in venture, meeting a lot of entrepreneurs on a regular cadence? Yeah, I always laugh a lot about the blogs that I wrote in the past. I don't like taking down blogs because I think it's personally for me, I think it's really interesting to read some of the older blogs and see how I've grown over time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I honestly think like, when I was an associate at Norwest, I, I had no idea really what I was talking about. But as an associate, you see a lot of startups, you see some trends. So I don't think like anything I wrote was particularly wrong. I just know that now that I'm at a startup, there's just so many nuances to everything. Whereas like in VC, you're just like making these like very broad statements. But like when you're at a startup, you're like actually figuring out how to make the broad statement happen. And so it's a very it's a very different perspective. But I think like at, at Norwest, probably one of the biggest learnings I had there is just how important it is to network. Every single company that I met was through networking. I actually got the job after this, which I guess we'll talk about later, through networking, meeting the right people, building the right team, working with people. So I think definitely that's the number one lesson I took away from working as an investor. Yeah. And isn't that the writing, actually? How do you decide to start a blog and and arrive out your experience? Yeah, I think that probably that blogging on WordPress and, and even like earlier Tumblr, those were like the initial versions of what link people call LinkedIn influencers today now. So mm-hmm. I think like what I realized as an associate is the only way for you to get your name out there is to start talking about what you're thinking about, things you're learning. And so that's really the reason why I started um, writing a blog. For me, it helps me to think about what I learned and write it down. But also it was a really great way to get your name out there a little bit more. So yes. like sometimes like people would come in and try to pitch me and then they'd be like, oh, I read this blog um, that you wrote about like the slides you need in your pitch deck. And that was really helpful. So I, I think that's that was the main reason why I did it. Yeah, no, and, and obviously you kept in touch with this practice throughout these years. And so it, it obviously seems like a, a good practice that allows you to constantly crystallize your idea, meet more people who come across your content and become a better startup operator these days, right? So you mentioned that you spent those years in venture capital and then after about two years, you actually decided to return to New York and, and became the first hire into the product organization at an infrastructure uh, database company called Cultural Labs. What motivated you to leave ventures and join early stage startup at this point? Yeah, I think there are a lot of different reasons why. Um, I talked earlier about how like I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to be um, a startup founder, but I wasn't entirely sure I was ready to do it just because I've never done it before. And I think it takes a lot of, I guess, ego and hubris to just do it with no experience, which I did not have. Um, Mm -hmm. So I decided to go find a company where I could learn what it's like to build a startup from someone who's like already doing it. So what I did was I knew I wanted to move back to New York because my family's on the East Coast and it was just getting too tiring to like travel from the West Coast to the East Coast all the time. So I just had this list of companies based in New York that I thought were really interesting that I had met during my time as an investor. And that's how I landed on Cockroach. I met the um, founder as an investment opportunity and really liked the company. And I just asked him if there was a job for me. I would say that one of the reasons why you might want to leave venture, which is one of the reasons why I did, is at the lower levels of venture and even like into the partnership level, in a lot of ways, you're doing sales. So you're like going out there networking and selling yourself and the fund to startup investors, Mm -hmm. to startups. And I, I felt that wasn't necessarily my strength at the time. And that in order to really have founders choose me, I needed to have a stronger background and to have a little bit more operating experience. 
that's another reason why I decided to leave. I just felt like staying in venture longer is wasn't exactly what I was looking for. And then also just realistically, you earn a really good salary in venture. So in, in the back of my mind, I was like, the more I sit here and get wait for that promotion, get a higher salary, get raises, the harder it'll be to move to a startup. So I just decided I'm just going to move to startup now before I'm getting a lot of money and it's going to be like, I'm going to have lifestyle inflation and I can't move back to startup anymore. So that's why I um, left venture so early on. Yeah, so it sounds like you're very intentional about like your different career milestone that you have and do you very cognizant about the pros and cons of staying in this scenario, the, the venture sector, and then being able to, being very self-aware about like your strength and your weaknesses and try to find something where they can double down your strength. Yeah, yeah I, I would definitely say that realistically, there's like a period of six months where I like have literally no idea what I'm doing. So like I'm sitting there in venture, I'm like, do I want to stay? I'm not sure. And usually after six months of thinking about this problem all day long, all the time, I definitely remember distinctly specific moments in which I decide. And I think that's how I've always just made career decisions. I just wait until I have enough like confidence, conviction to make that choice. And then once you've made it, even if it ends up being the wrong one, you remember exactly why you made it. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, do you have any advice for people working in venture who want to move into start making the same transition right? how you do? I think the most important thing if you want to go from venture into a startup is to go into a startup where you're the founder because it's just the easiest way. And if the founder thinks you're smart, they'll find a role for you. But I also think that a lot of venture people don't realize what they don't know. So I definitely feel as you're looking for a role um, at a startup, you need to know what you bring to the table. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I moved over to Cockroach, I knew that my strengths lied more kind of on the product marketing positioning side, mm -hmm. because as like a VC associate, you're always thinking about how do I position this company? Who am I selling it to? What's the market opportunity? And those are all relevant more for business and like business analyst strategy or product marketing. And I knew I was weaker on the product management side. So I think like a lot of associates who want to come out and immediately get a product manager role, it's difficult if you don't have a technical background. So you have to know where your strengths lie and look for a role like that. Like I know a lot of associates who left and went to startups and they all end up being becoming product managers, but they often start off with like really weird titles. They'll be like chief of staff or like special projects or yeah. business ops. And a lot of them transition to product management, but, but they start in an area that they're strongest in first. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context and talking about that that middle ground that you found from uh, doing product marketing when going to Cockroach. Your early responsibility at Cockroach focused on defining and understanding product market fit. And in fact, you've written a lot about like this period where you, you know, very new into product. You're talking about lesson learned from sales, you're talking about roadmap planning, product marketing, obviously. Just to name a few of the topics that I was supposed to do some research on. Can you go over some of the challenges and learning curves as a non-technical first product at Cockroach? Yeah, I would say that uh, if anyone from Cockroach listens to to this, they'll realize I had no idea what I was doing at Cockroach. I really think of Cockroach as my training ground in terms of becoming more technical. So I, I when I went, I literally had no operating experience. And so I think one of the biggest challenges was actually figuring out how to work with the team. Because when you're in banking, you work with, a really small team, you just have an associate above you and then like you might have a VP. And then same thing in investment, um, in venture, a lot of the deal teams that we have would just be two people. 
So a lot of times you were just working with like you and one other person who was senior to you. Whereas like at a startup, you like have to work with the engineering team, you work with like marketing, you work with all these different teams of which there are many people. So I think that was actually the biggest challenge for me, figuring out how to like actually work with teams again. But yeah, I think like being non-technical is also a huge challenge at Cockroach because Cockroach was largely engineering. I think at a certain point, it was like 1 p.m. to like 20 to 30 engineers. So the ratio of engineering was super high and it's a very technical product. Mm -hmm. And so the engineers are building a product for themselves. So you come in, it's really hard to actually be taken seriously and to show that you can add value. So again, I think what I really focused on was I knew all these things that I didn't know, but let's focus on the things I did know, which is more around, okay, let me think about like, how am I positioning things? Let me talk to customers. Let me analyze that kind of um, information. And then let me find some new insights that I can then bring back to the team that's different from what they were doing before. So I think really focusing on like your strengths and what is really important. But also what I would do is I would just like Google things about like how to build a roadmap. And then I would just follow the instructions and build a roadmap. Seemed to like work for the first year that I was there. But yeah, it's definitely a huge learning curve. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And on the topic actually about just identify best practices on product and then just got a chance to directly into Jojo product work. I, it was this interesting blog post you wrote that basically talk about framework for determining the best fit product strategy instead of best practices. Can you talk more about that process? A lot of resources out there about like framework for product things like that. How do you choose the one that that's best fit for a specific organization? And it is a approach for you. Yeah, I would say that over time, this is going to sound really bad, but I don't believe in true frameworks. So for mm. example, um, or Agile, I do believe in like frameworks for tackling a problem. For example, like how do you think about what process you should run? But I don't believe in like taking a template that someone else has created and applying it because it literally never works. I, I think like when I think about the best fit process, um, it's all about being a good listener and encouraging other people in the team to propose a process that works for them. And the other thing that I would do is I managed a lot of different pods of engineers And different pods are very different, right? Some of them were working on enterprise features. Some of them were working on backend stability. Some of them were working on like more front-end features. And all three had different processes. So I think it's really about getting to know your team, asking them for feedback, and then pulling in what you think is the right process. It might be a little bit of agile, might be a little bit of scrum, might just be like something you came up with yourself. But I definitely don't think like forcing a process ever really works. I see. So it sounds like just borrowing pieces of this different um, process that you come across and using your intuition to design something that fit the context of just the coders in the broader organization. Yeah. Once I moved on to timescale, what was interesting is at Cockroach, I would write GitHub issues and we would like use GitHub projects to plan things. Once we moved to timescale, the engineering lead that I worked with actually liked to do that, that himself. So I didn't write any tickets there. And then now it correlated, I also don't write tickets here. So it just really depends on the team. Also, I think it depends on like the expertise of the eng lead that you're working with. But I think ultimately how I measure whether or not a process is working is on outcomes. So are people generally happy? Are they executing things? Do they know what they're doing? So you can measure those outcomes. And even at correlated, our process has changed like every six months. So you can't expect one process to work all the time, like forever. Talking about that 
time you spend working at time scale, right? So you spend about two years at Cockroach, and then again, you become the first hand in the product organization at Timescale DB. Yeah, how would you describe your overall experience working there? Yeah, I, if you think with Timescale, I had moved over because I thought Timescale was kind of a very different product from Cockroach in that Cockroach was like, if you wanted to use Cockroach, you had to like almost rip and replace. So it was like a new use case. Whereas Timescale, it's a little bit easier to bring in Timescale for a very specific use case. It was a little bit more, I would call like focused versus Cockroach, which was like more of a general database. So I wanted to see what that was like, but really the reason why I moved over was because I wanted to see how two different founding teams ran their startups in like a similar space. And I thought it'd be really cool to learn how things are done in two different ways, but still in the same space. So there's not as much, like there aren't so many variables that are changing why like people behave a certain way. But like timescale was really great. I felt like I actually didn't operate as much as a traditional product manager as I did at Cockroach. But I did a lot more like business strategy thinking, worked on like partnerships and stuff, worked a lot with customers, worked with sales. So I thought that role was actually a lot broader than the role that I had at Cockroach. And stepping back into the space that you're talking about, both Cockroach and Timescale have focused on database uh, infrastructure, right? Can you just give a brief um, overview of the landscape of the database tooling? during these uh, two two years you're working. And so just for the people who are not familiar with, uh, with database infrastructure in general. Yeah. 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 During the time that I joined, actually, the main reason why I joined is because there was this huge growth in open source databases. Mm-hmm. So both Rockroach and Timescale are open source. And at that time, also Confluent and Elastic had both just gone public. Mm-hmm. So I thought this like new like open source selling model was really interesting. But like in terms of the landscape wise, Cockroach, I think was like, in some ways, trying to replace Oracle. So it was just trying to rip out like SQL. And it was changing how SQL databases were going to be deployed. Whereas with Timescale, it was almost a 180. Timescale was built on top of Postgres, which is like much more like rock solid, has been around for a long time, and focused on using the Postgres internals and optimizing them for the time series use case. Um, But in general, that during that time, there were like so many open source um, databases that came out. There's like Pipeline DB, InfluxDB, Grafana was like getting really big during that time. So Mm -hmm. lots of open source um, databases out there and were like DevOps type stuff. And just following up on that point, given your experience working in open source database, what do you see to be some of the major challenges of go-to-market open source product? Yeah, I think a lot of the lessons that people take from open source can be um, applied across all SaaS. So with developers in particular, um, they don't want to be sold to. So um, whenever you're trying, the reason why we're doing open source is so that developers can self-test a product before they decide whether or not to use it. Um, But I think the biggest challenge in go-to-market is that when you give out a product for free, it's really hard to figure out how to monetize that product. So there were a lot of behaviors that would happen in open source projects that didn't support a sustainable business. Mm-hmm. So for example, like you would have like Docker is a great example. It's like a great technology, but just wasn't monetized in the right way. So I think that was really the biggest challenge. If you're going to give something for free to people, but you don't collect emails, you'll never be able to sell to them. And then you'll also never be able to earn money. So I think it was just a really interesting space where like almost the world went too far into the free and open source world. And then when you try to bring it back, you like piss off a lot of developers. But yeah, it's definitely a really hard space, a really hard space to be in. I see. Yeah. During this 
period, I also came across this three-part blog series that you wrote about building product that focused on the most dissatisfied customer first, for the majority next, and then for the full need in the long run, something that people use more than once. Could you mind sharing the high-level thinking that prompted you to write these articles? Yeah, I think because I've always wanted to start a startup, I get really worried when I learn like some lessons at work and I don't remember them. So that's really the main reason why I like will blog about certain things. It's just like, I'm like, oh, that was a really great learning that I just had and I don't want to forget. So I'm just going to blog about it. And if people read it, that's great. But if people don't read it, I also don't care because it's just about um, me processing my learnings more so than trying to get like a huge following or anything. But I, I think really <laughs> when you um, shared this, um, some of the questions in advance and I read those blog posts again, I realized that um, in a lot of ways, um, those lessons, I think, have carried over into all the things that I'm doing now at Correlated. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think really when you're at a startup, uh, you're seeing everything happen in real time. And it's only after things have happened that you can go back and kind of process and understand what happened. So I definitely think that at Timescale, like we were just getting so many requests from like the open source community, from like customers. And it was just like, trying to figure out what to do first versus what to do later. That's really what triggered um, that blog series. Yeah. And I, I really like the way you structure the sequence of uh, these different tasks, right? Because I think what, during the research for this strata, I, what you, you constantly mentioned, the fact that startups are very resource constrained. So you have to prioritize what features to implement, what specific, in this case, segment to tackle first. And so it, I think it's made logical sense that you like focus on high priority use cases and then iterate and then expand the scope of the, the product features over the, over the long run as you are like here in, in this series. Yeah. And I definitely think one really important thing to think about is how important focus is at a startup. Mm-hmm. I think it's really easy in the beginning when you're like trying to figure out what problem to solve to almost feel jealous of other startups who are taking on the problem in a slightly different way and taking on certain customers that you think you could take. I think that's just like a losing game because at the end of the day, like if you can't focus and you try to capture all of the periphery like users in your space, you're never going to be able to like really build a really compelling product for that first target user. So that's definitely a lesson that I, that I took away. It's I think in in co- like conceptually, um, yeah. all the things I talk about in those blog posts make sense, but in yeah. practice, it's very hard to execute in that way. Yeah, actually, I I, I want to follow up on that part about cultivating focus in practice. How do you, as a product uh, operator, being able to focus in like in concrete details? Because I assume there's a lot of inference stakeholders that, like what internal and external inferences that makes you go the first direction? How do you like do conviction into focus on one thing? Yeah, I think that this is such a tough question and it's not something that I think I've perfected yet. I'll probably mm-hmm. write another blog post soon about this, but... Probably two tactical lessons that I've learned about how to be more focused is one, actually writing down your strategy is super important. So every quarter, I actually write down the three top strategic goals that we have and use that to guide um, all of our work over the next quarter. Now, I've realized the important thing is if you write it down, you also need to be checking it to make sure you're still executing against it. But I think the act of writing it down is great because at the end of the quarter, if you feel like you've left your focus, you can go back and read what your focus was and refocus everyone in the next quarter. So I definitely think writing things down is super important. I think the second thing that I think is really important is not to make decisions in like reactively. 
So like a lot of times you'll have these meetings with like engineering or like with like sales and they'll ask for things and then you'll decide then and there. I've just discovered that is the source of all whiplash. Like you're all in there and you're like, this is a great idea, but that great idea doesn't align with the strategy. So then it moves everyone's focus everywhere. And if you do that all the time, then now you've just scattered everyone into 10 directions. When before, like when everyone has time to sit down and think about things, everything is a lot more focused. Definitely two very technical things to do to maintain focus. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Graded writing style and then revising it at the end of the quarter or a year and then proactive decision-making not being influenced by other people during meetings and things of the nature. You spent about a year at Timescale and you actually left this company at the end of 2019. After that, you spent almost a year working on various ideas, doing research, and conducting user interviews. This led to the creation of Carlitted alongside your co-founder, Tim Gessenheimer and John Pinner. Can you share the funny story of the company? Yeah, so I quit Timescale because at that time, I was starting to feel like Timescale was, although different from Cockroach, it was still like being a PM at an open source database. And I felt like I was ready to start a startup. So I found a gig with one of my old mentors from Norwest who was willing to let me on as an EIR. And so that's how I funded a year of working on various ideas, doing user interviews and all. Lots of lessons learned there, but the TLDR is things did not work out. And Tim and John were at a different startup and looking to start something new. So Tim, who I had worked with at Timescale, reached out and was like, oh, do you want to tackle this like space of making data more understandable to business people together? And I figured I'd been like struggling for like the last year and it's probably a good change for me. So that's how we started the company. We just, all three of us were ready to move on and start a startup. Yeah, I, I see. And that's actually a pretty good point to do struggle to come up with a good idea. And then you got reached out by your old coworkers and try a relevant problem to tackle. So that's like the main catalyst, right? For you to actually pursue this idea compared to like exactly. various and productive ideas previously. I think um, one thing that you're um, talking about as well that's really important is a lot of times people get really stressed about coming out with a good idea when mm-hmm. going after a startup and they want to wait until they're like really sure. I just, I've discovered you like are never really sure. And I actually think really the reason why I failed in that first year was that I did not find the right team. Mm-hmm to tackle the problem. And the team that I found wasn't ready to start a startup yet. So I like the people is surprisingly important for starting a startup in addition to having that idea. So like when Correlated came, like now I had the people and the idea. So yeah, this is great. Yeah. And can you share a bit about your co-founder? What about them that made good co-founders? Yeah, I had worked with Tim before at Timescale. So I already knew what it was like to work with him. With John, I actually had not worked with him before, but we had a couple conversations and I thought he seemed really easy to work with. I felt comfortable with both of them because they had both worked at startups before. They knew what it was like to work at a startup and then they all like seemed easy to work with. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would say that I didn't really think too hard just because I knew Tim, but yeah, I didn't see any flags. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We'll talk about correlated um, in the current journey in a second, but I just want to touch on a pretty interesting note and... This is during 2020, which is during COVID. And before talking about Carlet, I was browsing your LinkedIn. And you actually started two separate like community to support some healthcare and COVID stuff at this point. 
First one is called InBest Health. The other one is called Home Club. Can you just touch briefly on on some of this initiative and what motivated you to do some of these activities? Yeah. Yeah. During the year that I was working on different ideas, Home Club and In Place Health were actually both ideas that I had. I see. It's like, let me try testing it out and seeing what happened. With Home Club, actually, we got 300 plus people involved. The problem with Home Club was what we would do with Home Club was during COVID, a lot of people lost their jobs. And tech was like booming like crazy. So we were like, it would be really great if we could just help people who had lost their jobs transition into a tech career because there are a lot of overlapping skills. And so what we would do is we would read their resumes and give them like a skill profile and suggest which jobs they should apply to and how they should change their resume, what keywords they should use to be more successful in looking for a job. And actually, some of the people that we helped out ended up getting the jobs that they wanted, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason why we stopped doing that is because it was so time consuming to do it. Like me and my co-founder, we were working on it until like midnight, 1 a.m. every day to manually come up with these assessments. And there's this one time, like this one day when my co-founder was, Diana, I just feel like we can't keep doing this and it's not sustainable. So we should probably stop. (laughs) I told her, I think you're right. So I think like one of the really important things when you're thinking about startups is do can you actually pull this off? Like spiritually, like as a human being, can you survive this process? And for us, home club was a no. Um, With in-place health, actually, I thought that was a really fun project. And I still think that it would work. What we were doing there was a lot of people want to age in place. And my brother actually does aging research. So he had discovered that there is essentially an assessment that you can use to determine how healthy someone is and whether or not they're likely to live longer. So what we wanted to do was productize this. But like I said earlier around team and timing, I was the only person who was working full time at that time on the project. So when you go out and try to raise money, no one will give you money. And I was switching into healthcare, which no one likes and selling to seniors, which no one likes. So I think that was like lots of learnings, lots of learning about not being overconfident about what you accomplish. Um, So I I really think that the correlated opportunity couldn't have come sooner. (laughs) It definitely was something I needed um, at that time. Yeah, for sure. Correlated's mission of companies to build the leading platform for product-led revenue that enables revenue teams to implement their driven strategy at product-led growth companies. My question is twofold. First, can you unpack this notion of product-led revenue for the uninitiated? And secondly, how does a correlated product work at a high level? Yeah, so just to start on pl- product-led revenue, this space in general, if you've been following it, has just blown up like crazy over the last year. And there are like a lot of terms out there that are like, oh, product-led sales, product-led revenue, product-led growth, product-led marketing, product-led everything. But I think at the end of the day, what is driving this trend is a change in how people buy and sell software. Mm-hmm. So before, like when software was like installed on your server or something like that, like you went more through an enterprise sale. But now that everything is hosted in the cloud, um, people expect to be able to use a product and figure out for themselves if they want to use it. And companies can actually track how people are using products in a much more granular level than they used to be able to. So I think this is really where this entire like product-led movement has come from, that more about your customers and your customers also don't want to talk to you. So how can you use your product to actually be the generator of your go-to-market engine? I guess the second question was, how does correlated work? Mm-hmm. That That is correct in terms of the workflow of the pure users. I, I guess we start with that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the way that correlated works is we are focused on helping growth people in growth teams. So this could be a growth PM or a growth marketer. And these people are tasked with figuring out of all the people who are using our product, who are the best people that we should talk to. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we collect all the data that you have about your customers. We use some like models to figure out who are the best leads. We score them so that you can prioritize those leads. And then we actually help you manage an end-to-end life cycle in terms of identifying the best leads, helping you automate, um, nurture, and reach out, and then also end-to-end measuring the conversion of the people that you reached out to. So we're like um, a customer lifecycle management platform for product-like companies. I see. And, and your focus end users, uh, the main users of the product growth practitioner. Right. right. Yes. So, and just on that note, connecting the data and then surfacing the data throughout the, the, the product platform, I guess a very important part of Carlet is, is the integration with a variety of tools across the, the tech stack of these PhD companies, right? And let's show you a dedicated landing page on, on Carlet website that basically showcase all the different integration of tools that your team has been able to connect with ranging from traditional CRM to sales productivity, data warehouse, partner out, reverse ETL, just name a few. Can you talk more about this holistic overview of how does integration play a role in your product strategy? Yeah, it's really funny that you say this because I think that data sources for us in integrating with data sources is probably one of the most difficult technical challenges. The trend that we're riding on is this modern, like, I can't exactly remember what the MDS, like modern data stack. This trend is what we're relying on, which is that everyone is having all this customer data that's being generated in a lot of applications and they're funneling it into a data warehouse to actually be able to like model interesting and more useful models for BI and for tools that correlated. So that's really the trend that we're tapping into. In terms of the actual integrations, that's also how we prioritize things. So our data warehouse integration is actually very self-serve. And so if you're a data team, you can go in and just add in different views that you've had in Snowflake and just add in different columns. So we've basically built, <laughs> we laugh about this sometimes, but we built like two separate products in our platform where you have that growth person who's coming in and interacting with the data, but you also have a data person who's going in and then using all of our self-serve data onboarding to connect all the different integrations. But yeah, there's like a lot of like interesting things that we do at the data layer to enable a drag and drop, no code interface for growth teams. And I guess that's why you try to go to market with both of these personas, right? Both the growth and the data practitioner. Yeah, we do write a lot of stuff around like how do you model your data? How do you use segments? Stuff like that. I will say that I think in general, the person who typically chooses to buy us is the growth persona because they're more aligned on a business level yep. and have that budget to spend on a software like this. Cronet also offers a variety of product playbooks to help users manage their product strategy from start to finish. And there's a whole landing page on the website um, that shows different play- play- library of a different stage of the, you know, customer journey from modeling activation, churn, et cetera. You know. The playbooks, I think, are really important because one of the biggest problems people have is like back in the day, you have these dashboards and then you don't know what to do with the dashboard. So playbooks help you figure out, now that I've discovered an insight from the data, what do I do next? So typically how I think about product-led go-to-market is breaking things up in different stages, like lifecycle stages. So to start, you might have someone onboarding. And in onboarding, one playbook that you might do is 
for customers who are have more than 500 employees, I actually want to send those customers directly to a customer success person. And for customers less than who are smaller, I'm just going to automate like the onboarding process, send them a couple emails. So that's one example of how you might have different playbooks for onboarding. Once someone is onboarded, they're trying to like activate in the product. So activation means they've used a couple of features and now they've understood the value. So a really good playbook there, I think, is for users who haven't actually activated those features, how can you send them campaigns to continuously remind them to come back in and activate those features? That's the second bucket. The third bucket is people who convert. So I think a playbook there that's really great that surprisingly a lot of people do not do is if you if in your product you have a gated feature and someone views that gated feature, you should send them an email about converting. That's a really obvious one. And then finally for churn, um, if someone like hasn't logged in 30 days, send them a reminder and ask them why they haven't logged in. So those are just a couple of examples across the entire customer lifecycle of playbooks you can deploy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose I, these playbooks are common practices across the industry that you get inspired and, and kind of automate that for agile users. Yeah, I think eventually my vision of where Correlated can go to right now, you have to build the playbooks yourself. But at some point, we're going to know so much about the best playbooks that we can tell you this is the best practice that a product like company should have. And if you're not doing it, you're like doing it wrong. So at mm-hmm. a certain point, for example, like the password reset flow looks exactly the same for every single SaaS company. I would imagine that in a lot of cases, the nurture flow might start looking the same. Or when you like hit a conversion point, things will look the same. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to start defining those best practices. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that insight. Your team recently shipped a new feature called Product Qualified Leads Scoring that uh, leverage machine learning to identify the best leads. How did you leverage your customer feedback to ship this new feature? Yeah, so th- this is actually a really fun one. And um, I think the fact that you chose this one was actually a really good tip because this is one where we actually did leverage customer feedback more often. I think like a lot of times people talk about like leveraging customer feedback, but you don't need to leverage customer feedback about like where you place the button because sometimes you might need to. Sometimes it's just common sense. But particularly for PQL scoring, what we did was We, for the longest time, were building playbooks and we're like, you want to automate things. And what would happen is we would go to a lot of these customers who are prospects and they'd be like, I just don't know what playbooks to build and I don't know what matters. Mm -hmm. And we heard that over and over again. And that's really the reason why we started building PQL scoring, because we realized we're hearing no's from people and people aren't using our product because they want to be told what to do. So That's like number one, how we use customer feedback just from sales calls. Sales calls are a great source of customer feedback. So then what we did after that is we had already had so many recordings about what people wanted and like the problems they wanted to solve that we used that to compile like the initial list of problems that we wanted to solve with this, with this product. And I think what's really important about using customer feedback in these cases is this is like such a new area that asking people what they expect or what they want is like counterintuitive because they'll ask for something that they know. So yes. rather than focusing on having them describe the feature to you, it's more about what is the problem you're trying to solve? And then we'll figure out like how to get you there. Yeah. So that's the approach we took. We made like a bunch of different mocks in Figma. And then we got some feedback on like those mocks. And what we also did is the PQL score is like a machine learning model, right? So we actually just built the machine learning model one off for a couple of our beta customers and had them look at the results to see if that was useful. And like whether or not the format of those results was, was useful. And they like gave us feedback then. And we use that to then create the current version, which is more of a beta that is built into the product. And it's just not super 
it's not super optimized quite yet, but it does work. And that's another version that we're using to get more feedback. I see. Yeah. And in related to that idea of customer feedback, uh, the reason I'm asking this question is because you wrote this blog post, um, giving customer what they want, not what they asked for recently. And it actually talked about the process in more detail. And uh, yeah, it's also this feature is some, something that reflect editors. And, and I believe this is also recently been being released on Product Hunt, right? And, and how's that perception has been for the community? Yeah, yeah, I think that, that that has been great. We did talk about PQL scoring in Product Hunt, and most of the customers who we bring in now actually are all like very interested in scoring. I would say like a vast majority of our current customers have already used the machine learning models. So mm. I think it's going really well. And I really think that like doing things iteratively helped us like figure things out at a lower cost. If we had just built the whole thing and waited to release it, then we wouldn't be able to get the, build this level of conviction and like validate things. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we're sharing that context. So for, for the remaining part of, about interview, I want to dig deeper into some of the very insightful articles that you've written on your Substack newsletter called Startup Monologues, which is all about startup and product management. You've written this article about tackling the challenge of communicating effectively in product management. And in, in fact, in, in that piece, you identify some of the consistent principles that have remained the same for successful communication, regardless of the company or situation. Yeah, can you uh, unpack some of those principles for the listeners? So I think over over time, um, I'm starting to realize that like communicating effectively is probably like 80% of the job in product management. Mm-hmm. And throughout my time at Correlated, I think I probably just like mainly have come up with the four main takeaways. One is that people cannot remember things. So if you're like trying to tell them something about a feature or like things that you need to do, you should just like limit things. So for example, when I write like a strategy doc or have a product overview where I'm like talking about like our strategy for the next quarter, there are always only three main goals. Like I don't care if I have five goals in the back of my head, I just delete the last two, but I only have three goals. And I think that's super important. And one of the ways I think to check whether or not that worked or not is if an engineer repeats it back to you in a later conversation. So I remember once I like did a presentation, I had three goals, and he comes back and goes, hey, I think we should build this feature because it maps to this goal. And I'm like, perfect. You were listening like you actually remembered. So I think that's that's one, one really important thing to not overload people. The second thing that I think is really important is listening. So I definitely feel like there are a lot of people in leadership roles who don't like to listen to people. And I think this is very detrimental specifically to product managers. Because as a product manager, a lot of times you're influencing people and you're trying to get them to agree with you. So then they also have to feel invested. So I definitely think like listening and asking people for their opinions if they're quiet is very important too. Another thing about communicating effectively is particularly in remote situations, actually pausing and letting people respond. So I think I was reading something about how it typically takes seven seconds or something for someone to actually respond to a question. So if you're sitting there and you ask, oh, does anyone have questions? And you just wait two seconds and move on. That Like no one, literally no one is going to ask you a question. So I think that's really important too. And then finally, this frustrates me a lot, but I'm sure like any product manager listening to this will understand what I mean. You'll give people like a product spec and like literally no one will remember what was in the product spec. And then so you'll have to repeat yourself like 10 times. And it's very frustrating, but I'm starting to realize that it's just the way of the world. You just have to repeat yourself until people start repeating things back to you. So I think like those four things are for what I've learned so far in terms of communicating. Yeah, I, I love how, how tactical you get with all this. 
strategy or communicating well. Is there any resources or books or things that, that help you become a better communicator? Yeah, I think what I like to do is I listen to a lot of podcasts of people I respect and hear about how they communicate. And I think that's really interesting. For example, like Lenny has a great podcast where he interviews a bunch of product people. And that has been really, really helpful in thinking about how people frame things. The other thing I really like actually is LinkedIn is turning out to be a surprisingly good way to learn new things about professional career. And people will talk about communicating effectively on LinkedIn too. So those are probably my like main sources of, of learning. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. You have also written another article about your learning on customer discovery at early stage startup. Can you share some of those takeaways with the listeners? Yeah, <laughs> I remember when I wrote that one and I've now had um, some more learnings that maybe I should update that article. But I think a lot of the concepts I write in there are, are still true. So when you do customer discovery, I think what's really important is obviously asking open-ended questions. So I, I remember getting into this, I wouldn't call it an argument, but it was like a LinkedIn discussion about how to do customer discovery at a startup. And the current format that I usually suggest on customer discovery is in a 30-minute period, which is usually the longest, like the amount of time you can get for customer discovery. The first 10 minutes are open-ended questions about what are your general problems? What are your top priorities? How do you think about like different things? All very open-ended. So first 10 minutes. Then the next 20 minutes are where you start diving into what you're actually doing. So this is why I actually think like you can do customer discovery in sales calls as well. So in that 20 minutes, you pitch them your solution. Maybe you show them some slides, you show them some mocks, and then you ask them, again, open-ended questions at the end about like how they felt about what they saw. And I really think that like my main takeaway on customer discovery is one, you have to definitely figure out who you're talking to. So don't just take like feedback from anybody, but also like body language is so important. Because people will tell you, oh, that's really nice or, oh, that's really cool. But actually, everyone just says that to everything. And you want to see if they're like excited. Do they lean in? Are they actually listening? Because it's so easy for people to be nice to you. So I definitely think that body language is like is key in customer discovery. And if you're not getting that level of excitement, you have to keep going and like iterating and figuring things out. Thanks for sharing that. And, and I suppose like to your point, this process of customer discovery is, is, is iterative, right? It's just always fluctuate and changing. That's why I realized your part about you need to constantly update what does it mean to to get the best customer feedback at a certain point? Is that really context-specific, I assume? Yeah, yeah. Especially if you're like at a huge company who can afford to pay people to talk to you, that's like very different from when you're at a startup where you're literally begging people to talk to you. So definitely like customer discovery changes over time. Yeah. And in that piece, you actually give a definition of what customer discovery look like. And I realize, which is talking to a broad range of potential customers in an open-handed way to find patterns in what value proposition resonate the most for a targetable segment. So it's a very like clear and, and specific and, and specific to each segment within your, your customer base. So I assume for each of these segments, you have different strategy and different ways to gather feedback. Yeah, definitely also that definition that you were just describing, I think it's like early on in that customer discovery process. And I think what's really important early on is you want to talk to, let's say like we're going after growth. We just talk to all growth people, but maybe at some point you'll start honing in on growth at enterprise. But before that, you talk to all growth people. And I think what's important is I really don't think you need to talk to a hundred of them. I think that's one interesting thing that I think the startup world has just sensationalized, talking to a hundred or a thousand people. 
just in practice, I've noticed after you've talked to 20 of them, they're all saying the same thing. So like that kind of that's when you go like at a startup, you don't have time to sit around and just like talk to thousands of people. So I definitely think that's like where maybe I disagree with some other things that are out there. But I definitely think once you start seeing a trend, just just dig in there and focus your efforts there and don't waste time. Absolutely. And my final question about your thought leadership regarding product management is that reflecting on your experience being the first product person at three separate startups, what are some of the early size of product market fit that carry through all of them? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this problem so much because when I think about Cockroach and Timescale, I feel like they were a lot further along in product market fit than Correlated was just because by the time I was there, the product was already the product. So you just figure out how to sell it. So you're thinking about market fit more so necessarily product fit. Mm-hmm. Um, but at Correlated, everything started from scratch. So everything is like you're learning about everything all together in one go. And it's very hard to figure out what's influencing the other thing. So it was definitely very different. But I think overall, obviously, that you have product market fit if you start seeing speed in terms of adoption. So this could be like you're getting more users, you're getting more revenue. But I think I don't particularly really like that definition of product market fit because it's not super useful for early stage startups. So of course, like if my company has like a hockey stick growth, I've like maybe got onto product market fit. Like it's like a lagging indicator. So what I really like to think about in terms of like early signs of product market fit, again, like we talked about body language, I think mm-hmm. that's really important. You have product market fit if you show someone, they're like, oh, wow, this is great. I would totally use it. Like it solves so many problems. That's that emotional reaction to something I think is a really good early sign. The other thing that I think is important is knowing if someone will come back and use something often. So do you actually solve a problem that they worry about all the time? Because otherwise, maybe you solve one problem for them, like you build a scoring model, but then they never want to use the scoring model again. So you definitely want to make sure it's like a recurring, important problem that's like first order. That's another good sign. So the third sign I have is your customers are happy and are referring you. And that means that at least for that customer that you have, you've product market fit for them. And then finally, even though we're talking about these early signs, you do want to see a repeatability that you start to see. So let's say like, your customer referred you. Now you go to another customer that has the same exact profile as that customer. Do they also have an emotional reaction, feel like you're really important? And then do they also refer you? So be able to repeat that same go-to-market process. So it's, it's definitely important too. Yeah, that's just very interesting. I see like how like some of the earlier size are more on, it's very qualitative, right? The actual reaction of, of the, the end users and some of the, and the one about repeatability is more about quantifiable things that, that you can do. So it's, it's a good mix of both like qualitative reaction and, and quantitative configurable setting that you, that you can adjust. Dana, thank you for sharing that, that very interesting experience in product and kind of your whole true journey across this different company. For the, this part of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I can ask you three rapid fire questions and then can you just uh, provide uh, quick answers in the broader product management community whose work you admire. So we talked about Lenny earlier. Definitely really like Lenny's podcast. He does a lot of great educational content. The second person I follow a lot is this woman called Julie Jewell, who was at Facebook as a product design person. And I think she just has really good product and design thinking. And she talks about like communication and management, which is great. Mm-hmm. And then I obviously have to mention my two managers, Jeff, who's at MongoDB now, and Nate, who's still at Cockroach. But they were like great mentors for me. And I obviously follow um, all the work that they're doing. Number two. 
What is one book that you recommend for people to cultivate a product-centric mind? So this is embarrassing. I don't actually read that many product management books, but I do think Crossing the Chasm is the book that you have to read because you just have to be able to like talk to people about it if they take Crossing the Chasm. Yes, it's definitely classic. And then finally, I'll imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage product manager on Twitter. What would you tweet about? I would tweet about not giving up and really just like all good things take time. One of the biggest lessons I've learned as an early stage manager is you are literally on a roller coaster. So some days people love you and other days people are sending you angry messages about how you're not very stable. So it's just, it's a roller coaster and you just have to fight through it. I think that's a great way to uh, conclude the conversation. So Diana, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about um, your uh, education at MIT, studying economics, earlier career working in investment at Morgan Stanley, your time working in venture, focusing on enterprise software at Norwest Venture Partners, and your career in product so far working at uh, Cockroach Lab, Timescale, and now your current journey with Correlated. A lot of interesting insight and uh, tactical lesson from working in VC to joining a little startup to building for different segments of customers to communication and product management, finding product market fit, as well as doing customer discovery. I'll be sure to link all the resources and content articles that we discussed today into the show notes so listeners can have a chance to follow up, maybe subscribe to your newsletter, follow the content from Correlated, and just enjoy. I think you've also been doing more and more work on LinkedIn to share some of your thought leadership to the broader PRG and data community. And I think those are definitely valuable to keep educated more about this uh, booming space that we start to see. Yeah, so I really enjoyed our chat today and I hope you have a great rest of your afternoon. Hey, thank you. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.